Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm with Maggie Ferguson, who's edited an extraordinary new book called Treasure Palaces, Great Writers Visit Great Museums, and it's a collection of essays in which a huge number, really a galaxy of literary stars, um, travels to a museum in which they've felt something really strong or they've got a strong connection with. And let's start, Maggie, by asking you, how did this book come about? What was the what was the sort of thought behind it? How did the series come about? In because it was published in the magazine Intelligent Life. That's the Economist's sister magazine. Was the Economist sister magazine, and the series began before I worked there. And it was the brainchild of the editor Tim Delisle, and he thought it up one day when he went with his daughter. I think it was in two thousand and eight to see the Chinese exhibition at the British Museum. And it was so full that they weren't able to get into the main exhibition. They just had to wander around the main court outside. But he later discovered that 35,000 people had crossed the doors of the museum that day. And I think for the first time since the Chartist riots in 1848, they'd have to shut the doors of the museum. And it struck him that museums had become far more attractive, light, lively places than they were in his childhood. And so he dreamed up this idea of sending distinguished authors back to museums that had meant something to them in their earlier lives. So the only exception to that in this book is Julian Barnes's visit to the Sibelius Museum, which he said he just he very much wanted to go. He'd never seen it before. But in every other case, there's a famous author going back to a museum that they visited possibly as a child or anyway, that it's meant something to them in their lives. And they were asked to weave a thread of memoir through a description of a visit to the museum. And we were very clear we didn't want them to sort of cover the waterfront. So they could, if they wanted, just speak about one object in the museum. And it didn't have to be kind of absolutely, you know, synoptic no tour guide thing no 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 alice oswald's which is one of the most wonderful pieces in the book uh she she was interested in one tiny roman nymph carved out of bone which you know she held in the palm of her hand and they were paid reasonably well to do this so on the whole people were keen keen to write well i was going to say because as someone who's often trying to commission writers to write you know, your list, you've got sort of Andrew Motion, Rory Stewart, Andrew Hagen, Anne Rowe, Alan Hollinghurst, Julian Barnes, as you mentioned, John Lanchester, Amanata Fauna, Alice Oswald, as you said, Anne Patchett, Claire Massoud, um, Margaret Drabble. I mean, it's, you know, it's a sort yes. of who's who here. Yes. And I was saying, how, how did you do it? How do writers really love museums or we were you just giving huge well, fees? Um, we offered a fee of a pound a word, which to some of them, to, uh, Andrew Hagen, for example, said that that was his rock bottom. He doesn't work for less than a pound a word, um, but he would just about do it for that. And he did a he did a most lovely piece. But other people, I mean, Andrew Motion was absolutely thrilled to bits to get a thousand pounds. And well, poets are cheaper, aren't they? It, poets poets <laughs> are cheaper. Ones. It was quite funny. He was he was judging the Booker Prize the year that he did it and I went to the shortlist announcement and he had just given in his piece and been paid and he obviously told his fellow judges that there was this kind of opportunity for writers to do these things and about four people came swarming towards me <laughs> wanting, <laughs> wanting commissions. We not only paid them we also sent them back to the museums and they, they might be that might mean you know go like Roddy Doyle went you know to New York or 
and ditto Don Patterson, and we put them up for two nights in a hotel. So on the whole, they thought it was quite a good deal. Treasure Palace, indeed. This is the grand old days of journalism. Well, did that create a positive incentive for writers to travel around the world, do you think? I mean, yes, I think I think they didn't all... I mean, some of them leapt at it straight away. Others, like Roddy Doyle, I was very, very keen to have him. And he said, right from the beginning when I asked him, he said what he'd like to do was to go to the Lower East Side Tenement Museum in New York. And I was really, really keen for him to do it. But it took about three years, I think, of, of kind of drip dripping with emails. And eventually he... I should say that I took over the commissioning of the series in about 2010. Yeah, with writers like Roddy, there were we had to sort of keep trying. Softly, softly. Were there any that got away that you particularly regretted? The ones that got away, on the whole, were people who who came back to us and said they really didn't like museums. They couldn't bear going to museums. One of those was Richard Ford, who wrote a wonderful sort of long email about his feelings about museums and I rather kick myself now because I think we could have done a really good piece on people who hate museums or on people's kind of cultural blocks and Rose Tremaine was the same she said she found going to museums a bit like being at New Year's Eve parties she just she she, feel, she felt sort of put on the spot to say to have, have some have kind of interesting react. response immediately and she couldn't she couldn't do it. Did you think of the ones that did go there was anything I mean, obviously, you asked for a thread of memoir, but there was a sort of theme, you know, there were particular things that came out in terms of what spoke particularly to writers in museums. I don't think, I don't think there's one theme running through all of them. There are various, various different themes that link them. That, that quite a lot of them are drawn to slight kind of melancholy. So Don Patterson's piece about the Frick is really a kind of elegy for his friend, the poet Michael Donaghy, who used to go to the Frick a lot, and he sort of felt him there. John Burnside's piece about the Ensohis, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, in Ostend, is a, is a sort of elegy for his mother. So, and then yes, that's the one that's full of masks, isn't that's it? That's the one that's full of masks, and he, he says he suddenly realised the mask that his mother had been wearing for him all these years. It, it was right at the end of it. She, she died, I think, six months after they came back from that visit. Then there are various people who, who had these kind of moments of epiphany as children. Andrew O'Hagan, I think he was 13 when he first wandered into Kelvin Grove in Glasgow. And he came from a house without books and where painting meant dulux. And it's rather touching. He says he wandered into the museum. He wasn't sure whether you were supposed to know something already before you went in there. And I can't uh, which other one is somewhere in the book there's somebody who says who repeats that remark about you know you don't judge art art judges you yes there um, is somebody who says that about someone sort of not getting Goya the first time around then that's right I think that's John Lanchester is it yes it is John yes. Lanchester yeah. yes yes so and Alison Pearson in the Rodin Museum she she conjures up wonderfully the kind of thing of being a teenager on a school trip to Paris and being kind of route marched round the Louvre and finding the Mona Lisa incredibly disappointing, small and disappointing and difficult to look at and then finding on the left bank this little Rodin museum and being absolutely bowled over. Yes, she um, managed to entwine the story of her own first snog into and she, well. and she <laughs> Yes, she, it was her own first snog and she, anyway, she says Rodin's kiss has been more lasting in her memory. So there, yeah, there were quite a few people. Um, Tim Winton wrote a lovely piece about the National Museum of Victoria 
in Melbourne, which he visited with his parents when he was about 10. And they came from, they lived near Perth. They came from Western Australia. It was a sort of huge pilgrimage across Australia to go to the museum. And they turned up very scruffy, very hot, rather bad-tempered. And he had stubbed his toes very badly, so he took his shoes off and dipped them in the sort of water feature outside the museum and was terribly badly told off and found the whole thing so embarrassing that he went and hid behind a Henry Moore sculpture and then gradually as he hid behind it he began to look at it and began to see that it was a beautiful thing and he said he came out of the museum that day a different person sort of cleared it. I mean as a device for getting something really personal out of writers in journalism, it really seems to work, you know. Yes, absolutely. There was a question sometimes of whether we should change the series and simply have writers writing sections of memoir. But I don't think that... I think it was a clever device to, for getting them to talk about themselves. And I don't think they would have done it so willingly or so well if they were just talking about themselves. Yes, so all the blinkers and guards go down, don't they? Yes, they? yes. There are also some very un- unexpected museums in here. I mean, it's you know, obviously a highbrow economist, intelligent life, and you've got the ABBA Museum in there as well, which I thought was fantastic. What was- yes, that was Matthew Sweet, and it's, it's a wonderful piece. He makes quite bold claims for when he talks about the ABBA song, The Winner Takes It All. He talks about it being in a cosmos in which we're subject to the whims of dice-playing gods... Scandy cousins of King Lear and Tess of the Durbervilles. It's quite, <laughs> well, sort of, it was sort of quite essay strange. On Abbey and determinism. You know? Yes, <laughs> it was very sort of eccentric. Probably the strangest one is Amanata Fauna's Museum of Broken Relationships in yes. Zagreb. I wondered if she'd made that up entirely. I know actually. we have the photographs to to prove that it wasn't made up, but it is the weirdest sounding museum, set up by a couple as they were breaking up a, a relationship and dividing up the kind of spoils they decided that it would be good to start this museum so they started it as a sort of broken up couple and then more and more people sent their things in and they've got things like sort of a huge pair of fake breasts which a man insisted that his wife wore during love making (laughs) (laughs) an axe with which uh, one pair of a lesbian couple chopped up all the other's furniture when she was dumped and that kind of thing. So for really very, very, very strange indeed. You'd like to think it would have had a happy ending where the couple who set up the museum got back together and got married. Yes, no, I don't think that, I don't think that happened. And how did Amanda know about this place? When she was writing one of her novels, she went to Zagreb. One of her novels has a bit of Zagreb in it and she just wandered into it. So, yeah, and then asked if she could go back there. She was going to write about a museum in Mali, but it was too dangerous, so she, she went there instead. And the other, the other rather strange one, it, particularly strange if you could see the photographs, which you can't in, in this book, is Jacqueline Wilson's Dolls Museum in Paris, run by, quite unlikely, run by a father and son, and there are hundreds and hundreds of dolls made up in different sort of tableau and really quite... Ugh quite kind of sinister to me but she she loves it well I, I couldn't imagine anything surrounding Jacqueline Wilson being at all sinister but apart from possibly her signing cue yes yes no she she's been there every year with her daughter for years and years and and did you do any nudging I mean with some of them did you say for example because it seems almost sort of too perfect that Michael Morpurgo went to this first world war museum I mean did you say 
how about we pay you up with this museum or did you give them a completely free? On the whole, they were completely free and they made their own decisions. But Michael Morpurgo, actually, I did give a slight nudge to. He and I were working together at that time and so he was going to Belgium anyway and I went with him and we also brought along my daughter who was 12 at that time. So she had the most wonderful time going not only around the museum but to visit the place of the Christmas truce and all that kind of thing with Michael as her sort of guide. So he no he was he was guided a bit but I can't think that any of the others were. Would Anne Rowe then have been a colleague of yours? Anne Rowe actually wrote her piece before I uh, took over the series but oh, right, she okay, but but yes she was she was on the economist. Yeah. That's I mean that's a lovely that's a lovely piece. She really gives you the sense of I think both she and Julian Barnes, perhaps this is another kind of theme, is where great artists have, have sort of lived and worked. Julian Barnes does it with, with Sibelius's house in Finland, and you get such a such a strong sense of the sort of sublime next to the very practical. Yes, he's got a sort of apple corer, hasn't <clears> he? He's got an apple corer, and then there's the score of his fourth symphony kind of laid out. And I've got to say, I like in the Barnes bit that he says... Rather high-minded, you know, I've never been remotely interested in the biographies of the great composers, the yeah. biographical details, except I make the sole exception for Sibelius. Now yeah. He's gone on to write a book about Shostakovich. Yes, 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 but it's a, it's a lovely piece. But and Anne Rowe does the same thing. She really kind of conjures up what it would have been like to live in that house, tiny house, tiny, tiny little double bed for Wordsworth and his wife, rain kind of pounding on the windows and... Well, she's got a great facility, hasn't she, for that sort of imaginatively intertwining herself yes. into the world, world yes. of the subject. I mean, yes. Shelley book was remarkable. Do I think, how long did the whole series run for? I mean, it, has, it, has it run its course? It's run its course. It's finished because Intelligent Life is no longer going. That's 2016. So that's 2000 and... Is it only 2016? Yeah. No, so I'm just I making suppose a cheap it, joke. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. It, yeah, so it ran for nearly eight years. I think there were 30 four pieces altogether so and we've, we've got about there are about 22 i think here two-thirds of them yeah i mean i think i think for me ronnie doyle's is the outstanding piece and that's why we kicked off with it because he really captures the atmosphere of these tenement houses and the immigrants in america in the 19th century and the kind of difficulty of their lives but also the beauty and he he describes brilliantly things like the wallpaper and I was rather pleased he said he used the word floral for the first time. He'd never written the word floral before before he wrote his piece about the museum but there's floral wallpaper and you really feel these, the ghosts of these people. Why was it he, I mean, maybe my ignorance about Roddy Doyle, but why was it he went to New York to do the Tenement Museum? I mean, of course, the sort of Irish emigres, but... Has he written about that extensively? I don't think so. Because I always I think... sort of think of him as sort of firmly in Ireland. Yes. No, I don't think I don't think he's written about it. He'd just been there several years back and, you know, said he that that's the place he'd like to go again. But it's just a it's just a most beautifully written piece. And as they all are, actually. So I think that's what is really interesting about them is that they're all amateurs. We were very keen that nothing sounded like a proper piece of art criticism but they all have this beautiful writing oh, that's uh, interesting so you do you, you 
you know, any, any writer you knew to be a kind of accomplished art critic was sort of off the list. Probably. Anyone who was an art critic was off the list, yes. Some of them get quite close, but yeah, on the whole, they're, they're amateurs responding to things, but, but in the most beautiful language. It is beautiful. Is, is there, I mean, do you think of it as a sort of desert island discs sort of arrangement almost? Yeah, it is in in a way. Yeah, or kind of inheritance tracks for objects or something. I mean, it seems to have that kind of. I mean, both of those shows seem to have that ability to kind of elucidate something very personal for people. Yes. By putting them in front of something else. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. And some, I mean, some more than others. John Burnside's piece is extraordinarily personal. Not not everybody is as you don't get as close to everybody as as that. Um, You do get quite close to Alice Oswald with this. I was fascinated by the thing that she. This object, this little kind of Venus that she wanted to hold, she, I think she said in the piece that her condition of doing this was that they had to let her hold it in her hand. That's right, that's right. She was, yeah, she was one who nearly got away, actually, because I don't think she, on the whole, is very keen on museums, and I think she, she says so in the piece. She just, yeah, she, she finds it very difficult to react imaginatively to things behind glass. She says they have a... I think she talks about the aloofness of things behind glass. But she had been fascinated by this tiny, tiny little water nymph and, yeah, said she would go if, if she could hold it in her hand. And that is literally all she looks at in the whole museum. There's nothing nothing else Just at all. straight out of business. Yeah. You, you must have thought about it yourself, but what would be your museum? Uh, my museum was actually done by Kathleen Jamie, but it's not in the book. And it's the Stromness Museum in Orkney which is a most wonderful, fairly small space, and it feels as if a great kind of wave has gone over it and left behind sort of flotsam and jetsam from all going way back in Orkney history. It's just sort of um, Orcadian life from sort of prehistory to pre- prehistory the Prehistory to the, to the present day and, and natural history as well. So there's a, there's a little whale's ear bone and uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's an absolutely wonderful place so I would have I would have written about that did yeah. you did you grow up in or around Orkney I mean I know you've no, written about no. George Mackay Brown and that sort of yeah adoptive turf I guess but no no I didn't go there at all until I was I was about 26 I went to interview George Mackay Brown and that's how it began and you went to the Stromness Museum and I went to the Stromness Museum yes so yeah that would have definitely been mine and would you be like Alice Oswald in and out one object or oh no 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 I love the whole kind of clutter of things you know china from the german ships that scuttled themselves in scapa flow and old newspapers and old photographs of stromness theatricals from the kind of victorian age and that kind of yeah well, I, would like to, boat, I would like to read that piece we should, <laughs> should try and find a way of reviving this slot so that we can anyway maggie ferguson thank you very much Not and at all. everybody buy treasure palaces great writers visit great museums because it's great Thanks for listening and have a very happy Christmas. We'll be back in January.